0: Welcome to the first ever episode 23 of our podcast, Fintech Insider. My name is David Breer, and as always, we're coming to you live from London in the heart of fintech up here in level 39. Today I'm talking to two major influencers in the fintech scene. First up, we've got Sam Moore, director of digital and fintech at NTT Data Americas. And then we've got Chris Gledhill, who is the CEO and co-founder of UK challenger bank SECO. First, I talk to Sam about everything from his career in the Navy to how we got involved in the femtech movement. Listen in. Awesome, well, I'm sitting down now with Sam Mao. Sam, thank you very much for for joining me here. You've uh, come all the way from sunny Florida, so. uh... And it's beautiful outside. Well, not quite beautiful outside, cool. but I, I love your enthusiasm anyway. That's uh, that's wonderful. I've done a bit of a, a kind of a dig through your background, which always sounds quite sinister. I know when I sort of start saying that in terms of where we're at, but you have one of the most varied backgrounds that I've ever seen. Quite frankly, it's quite impressive. For starters, you you pretty much lived on a submarine for nine years. L- like, talk me through this. What's what was the the background?
1: The USS Simon Bolivar, the Simon Bolivar, Bull- George Washington of South America, wow. Mr. Bolivar. I, um, I was desperate to get out of Detroit. So I grew up in Detroit, mm-hmm. which is awful. At 17, I joined the Army, believe it or not. I did two years in, as an infantryman in the Army. And if you are a smartass, you're just not And if you ask why, that's a really bad way to go into work. So that was my first job. I was horrible at it. Had to, I had to make a choice. I either went back to Detroit or I did something else. So I thought, okay, the Army didn't match. So I'll do the direct opposite, so I went in the Navy. And found out that I actually tested really well. In, in maths, as we say in the UK, in my maths and science. And uh, yeah, I went, went into the Navy, qualified on submarines, which is a really good fit for me, because it's the most non-militaristic part of the military there is. Mm-hmm. It's really laid back, so it was a good fit. And you're supposed to ask why. And so I enjoyed it. I had a good time. And I'm short, so I fit really well. That's important. <laughs> no banging your head. That's yeah, a- no, not at all. I'm perfect for that. You know? Five, seven and under. So me, Tom Cruise, Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> Those guys, they do well.
0: It, it's an amazing, uh, like, the idea that you're living it
1: under, so far under sea a lot of the time. Right? Like, how is how was that? Um, you know, it's a thing mentally. I, I really do. I think it's something, I think astronauts are probably like that too, right? You know, if, if, if you or I, you know, they said, well, I want you to go to Mars and, and never leave and be stuck in that, I'd probably be okay. You'd probably go nuts. Um, it's, it's being able to take your, your mind or your brain and just occupying the time, finding something to do with. I, I've got like a
0: two-hour commute home. I can barely deal with that, never mind like being underwater for, uh, for that period of time. Yeah, know. and I
1: have ADHD really bad. I don't know how I did it, actually, looking back. But um, I have absolutely no clue. <laughs> <laughs> I probably was horrible.
0: And, and no you transitioned from that into uh, Northern Trust Retirement Consulting. So this was, a, 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 again, a, a very different shift. Like, what was the bridge between those two?
1: Well, I, my first job out of the Navy was as an HR manager for a Japanese steel fabricator in uh, northwest Georgia, believe right. it or not. Um, and that was because of my QA background in, in, the, in the Navy. I knew QA really well um, because on a submarine, you either do it right or it sinks. So yeah, that's the QA program. Do it really right or, or everybody dies.
0: There's no fail fast. There's no, though, right? Yeah, no it fail like, fast. Yeah.
1: And they were trying to set up a, a good program at this company, so they hired me under the, the guise of an HR manager, which I lasted exactly 28 days, wow. by the way. Okay. And they, they, the um, president of the company brought me in, barely spoke English, and he said, um, Sam, you have no heart. And I thought, oh, my God. God, I do not to get fired. Twenty-eight days in a job, but he said we think you'd make a great QA manager. And what he meant was, I'm not empathetic. Um, I, I, I didn't really show any empathy. So as an HR manager, I was horrific. But as a QA manager, I was really, really good because I was really, really focused.
0: I can't believe that. You know, you, you like, know. you know, we it's we weird. talked about this sort of before, but you you have the reputation of being the nicest man in fintech and banking, right? You know, I'm the an
1: asshole. It, it is that? the it's the <laughs> biggest bit of hype ever. I'm a jerk. Um, I, I, I'm 50 years old. That was when I was. You're not 50 yeah, years old. Yeah, I turned old. 50 in two weeks. Oh wow! You no, you never. You're making it all up. my jobs right. Do the math. That's true. That's, I guess that's, yeah. that's a 30-year career. Yeah, I turned 50 in a couple weeks, and uh, I've changed a lot. I'm a lot mellower now. I actually like people now, or at least I fake it really well. Um, back then, I didn't. I was really anal and I was really focused. So, uh, <laughs> so, you, so you're where I'm going to
0: be in like 20 years. Yes,
1: right? you, <laughs> I'm going to be a nice guy, in like 20, the, right. the, the whole staff is laughing because they don't believe this. <laughs> yeah, your future is really bright. Good. Um, I've mellowed as I've gotten older, definitely, but um, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot about making those mistakes. I was one of those um, when I when I went. I was in the banking side. I was the the nut that would do 90 hour work weeks and 100, which as a banker is is ridiculous. As an entrepreneur, it's a must, right? It's what we do, but it's what we love to do. I say we as if I have a company. I'm, I don't have a company, but, but it, it's the thought process. Yeah, but right? it's it's
0: the difference between doing something that you love and, and, and doing something that's a job, isn't it? It's, exactly, uh,
1: and what I do now, I love. Yeah. So for me, it's not work. I get asked all the time, how are you doing all this stuff? Um, because I wear a lot of hats, and it's because I like it. It's what interests me. Sure. So,
0: Another stint there, and suddenly you pop up in England, in York. Yeah. What, what what was the move there?
1: Well, I, every job I've had, I've had zero background in. I knew nothing about the Army, obviously. I knew nothing about the Navy. I knew nothing about steel. So you interview brilliantly, I right? con my way, like you <laughs> wouldn't believe, in every job. So I went to work for TESIS. Uh, they were convinced I was a stellar programmer and project manager. Um, I'm a good hacker. I'm a lousy project manager because that's attention to detail, which the older I get, I lose. <laughs> but again, I, I interviewed really, really well and actually really enjoyed the job. And I was coming back and forth to Europe with TSIS. They were expanding into Europe about the time I was hired. And I was going back and forth working with like Royal Bank of Scotland, Deutsche Bank, Santander, and others. And I was going so much, it just made sense for me to, to move over full time. And so my family, my kids were raised in York, England. Um, I'm. My friends back in the States say I act very European because I'm obviously very European in my views on life. Are they, we'll are that. they using that as an insult? Yes, or is it, it's 100%. A, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That'd be like me telling you you're very French. Yes, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's an insult, um, which I don't care. But um, we really enjoyed it. We loved it. And we had a good um, almost five-year run over here. So U.K. is like a second home for me. I, I love coming here. I mean, right before this, I went up and saw all my friends and what I consider family in New York. And the same with London. I've had so many friends here. So
0: cool. I love it. Well, and suddenly you're, you're back in Florida.
1: So you're back in uh, Culler and Gallagher. You,
0: you did your stint uh, in, in uh, London and uh, in uh, York, sorry. And then suddenly you're, you're back uh, over there in the, in the sunshine again. Yeah, that was my
1: penance. Um, Florida's fine. I like it. It's a lot different than the UK. But working for a consultancy firm, first time. And it's funny that I work for a consultancy firm, in all honesty, because I hated consultants. When I was on the flip side, when I was a banker, when I worked at at Tesis and others, um, consultants didn't really impress me. I was one of them, right? Why should I pay you all that money for what you do? Um, I've evolved. I understand that some consultants, I said some, some are worth the time and energy and uh, really know their stuff. Um, the, the team that you put together 11FS, so that's a good example, right? When you put together, this is why I'm known as the nicest guy because I suck <laughs> up. Flattery gets here. Yes, right. but it's true, right? When you get a small core group of folks that really know what they're doing and there's really not a weak link, you're going to do extremely well. And that's what I saw with, with Carlisle and Gallagher at the time, which then was acquired by NTT. It's the same type of thing. Um, specialists, really, really good at what they do, strong backgrounds, and you bring a lot of value. So I've, I've had a good run. It's been fun.
0: So it's an interesting one, isn't it? When you, when you sort of flip into that, almost uh, most organizations are brand-led. Uh, and actually, the, increasingly the industry is moving to, to reputation. So it's the reputation of the individuals rather than necessarily the reputation of the organisation. Uh, and I think a lot of organisations are, are struggling with that. You know, it's um, it's the idea of Man United being bigger than any of the players, and that's fine until you have Cristiano Ronaldo playing, right? And then actually, the some of the players are going to be slightly bigger reputations than than the club in itself. So. But what, what are you doing at NTT now? How are you um, how are you sort of uh,
1: working there? Well, more importantly, why would you use a man you analogy? I mean, I don't understand that whatsoever, <laughs> god. No, maybe not so these many days, other teams yeah. we could have gone with. Well, where, uh, where I live yeah. in
0: Norwich, I, I don't
1: know. No like international audience wouldn't know Norwich City at all. So, so I do and and by the way, they Norwich City beat Arsenal last year. And Dave <laughs> never <laughs> shut up about it. Um, forever and a day. Um, I agree. I, I think we're, we're reflecting, I'm going to go historical now, the Renaissance period, when it did went back to individual talent, mm-hmm. right? And that meant so much um, outside the organization. I think we're seeing that in our industry, thank God. I think it's much, much needed. Um, it's a breath of fresh air in, in what we're doing. And I think finding those individual talents, especially in this day and age, due to, due to social and just the very way we network, You can do that now. I don't think 10 years ago you could have pulled that off. You know, you were David at Gardner. You were David at Lloyd's. You weren't, there was no way you could build up a reputation like that. And so I think we live in a golden age. I'm thrilled with what we have. And it's interesting for me because now, you know, you just mentioned it. I was with a small consultancy firm, maybe 800 folks. Now I work for NTT, which acquired my company. It's 270,000 employees, 90 countries. Yeah, massive. And yet they give me a lot of bandwidth. Um, they, they've made it very clear within the company that I'm slightly unique. I think that's a nice way of saying <laughs> <laughs> he's a pain in the ass. But they're really good about it. They, they, they are smart, and they recognize that there are folks like that. I think 10 years ago, 15 years ago, even in your career, you probably saw this. If you tried to pull off what you and I do, we'd be gone. They would have shown us the door a long time ago. Now you have to protect those resources. Um, and, and too many companies aren't. There's too much talent leaving the banks. It's a difficult,
0: difficult one, though, but you, you have to earn that trust, don't you? I yes. think that, that's the thing. And it's um, you know, either through things that you've done or, or places that you've worked, you've kind of gained that credibility. You've gained the nicest guy in fintech reputation. That actually means you, you have that latitude to, to sort of take they, – they can take that risk on you because of the experience that you've got,
1: I think. And it's, and I don't think it has anything to do with age or time in the business. So let's take Simon, for example. So I worked with Simon Taylor at Tesis. We both came out of there. Um, Simon is nowhere near 50 but it's easy to look at Simon and see the talent there. Who's the guy that is the uh, president of Loot? Ollie. Ollie's yeah. 23? Yeah, yeah. yeah. amazing. And it? I'd put him on any team in a heartbeat. Yeah. So I don't think it has anything to do with age. It has to do with what you've been able to do and accomplish. And to me, that just means so much more. And I think if, if especially large organizations... I'm not, just not going to say banks. It's also the processors. It's the solution providers. It's the you know experience. It's the others of the world. They have to be smart and not lose that talent because yeah. they are left well, and right.
0: Well, arguably, you know, this is what we sort of say about fintech. You know, it's not just disrupting the bank. It's disrupting everything in the value chain. You know, it's the reason why people like us exist is because we can now. You know, if like you say, 10 years ago, a small company going up against a large one for doing it, you wouldn't hear of it. You know, a bank wouldn't even entertain it. But that's the place that we're in now. People are looking for solid alternatives to um, you know the, the way in which it's been done before, which is good news for everybody, really. It's, choice is always a good thing, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree completely. Um, it's an industry that needs a reboot, mm. um, majorly. <laughs> it's going to be a very tough industry to get a reboot on. I, I am getting ready to do a keynote in a couple of days, and I reached out to a bunch of folks asking them for their input on payments and what they think the biggest change is going to be and I asked Dave for this and his reply was nothing which I thought was the most honest answer mm. ever meaning from a large scale player it's going to be very difficult to get anything done yeah. for the for the smaller nimble players they're going to do a lot mm. in in a good way and impact the industry and help out the larger players yeah. the, the, we'll see a lot of adoption of what they're able to do so again I think we live in a golden time I mean we really really do you now. Yeah. far If we don't, as humans, get in the way of that, so I'm gonna go on a little riff here, um, you you read a lot about AI, right? And this whole notion of when will it become self-aware, you have the Elon Musk camp, right? And um, where they could wipe us out, or it could wipe us out. And I never really subscribed to that theory until this year (laughs) now, I think. (laughs) Thank you, uh, England, for Brexit, and you're welcome for Trump everyone um yeah so now i do start to wonder if ai is going to look at us and say you people make as a as a species don't make any sense yeah it's it's a
0: funny one isn't it we we spoke about this on a show we did um maybe like five or six episodes ago but you know the idea that actually artificial intelligence has to learn from somebody and is humanity actually the best people to be teaching the best way of, of behaving you know it's like a a bad parent. Trying to teach a, a, a child how to act—it it doesn't
1: work out very well in terms of doing things, does yeah, it? So the, the EQ side, the emotional side—the idea of reading um, to AI children's stories, mm. right? Which I think is brilliant, and yeah. we need to do um, because there will be there's that emotional connection and uh, the EQ component of what we do, which we've learned over time is incredibly important, mm. right? How well do you work with the team? Empathy—that's a skill I've had to learn over the past thirty years. Um, because, again, when I started out, I was horrible. I wasn't I was an asked. And uh, I can reflect on that and see that now. But I've, I've learned that over time. And, and how we build that into our technology solutions, we have to. We see that with, with driverless cars, right? What decision are you going to make? Do you save the one? Do you save the, save the many? Mm. Those type of decisions, we have to build into it, right? Yeah. And that, I think that's um, it's Pandora's box. So
0: now you get to travel the world and you know talk to talk to fun people at fun conferences, and uh, that, that's an amazing career, right? And you know from the you know depths of the sea in a submarine to, to sort of traveling the world to lovely places like London and Barcelona to do presentations. It's a it's a good cycle, right?
1: That's, I, I, I call it being an evangelist, and there's a, there's quite, there's a, quite a few of us, I think, that fall into, you fall into that category. Chris Skinner does. Um, you know, there, there's several that do that, and I think we need that. We need, the, we need folks that give a reality check mm. on both sides, though. I, I, I think it gets pushed too much just on the banking side. You also need to do a reality check. We're at level 39 right now, and, you know, the place is packed. But I think there's some, some elderly advice that we can give a lot of folks here, too, right? Um, I think it goes both sides to, to give them a, to paint the picture of how well this can work, mm-hmm. um, how much I personally believe in this. I'm thrilled to see how much Level Thirty Nine has changed over just the past couple of years. I'm thrilled to see the career of my friends change so much. I think I enjoy that more than anything. That actually, that's on my LinkedIn profile. I think I stole a line from an author named Dan Pink, which is, you know, if you could summarize yourself in one sentence, what would it be? And and mine was is is striving to make change in other people which I like
0: that's nice yeah
1: I stole it from him I didn't come up with it (laughs) whatsoever but I love the concept of it Hmm. right and I'm learning that the older I get that's the more I want to do maybe it's because I have a lot of kids I have four kids I got a three-year-old granddaughter and I'll show pictures later they'll be available in the podcast notes you'll (laughs) you'll see those but I believe that's incredibly important is is how much change you can help be a catalyst for in, in other folks
0: but it, increasingly what we're sort of finding actually in the work that we're doing is the, the major change isn't through technology, it isn't about AI, it's about people and exactly. it's about how you change the mentality or the, the culture of an organization manifests itself through what it actually then delivers to, to a customer. So, you know, you have to start, you know, it feels very Michael Jackson on us here, but, you know, you've kind of got to start with the man in the mirror, haven't you, in terms of things that are going on there? So- and that's
1: a challenge, right? Because the tech always changes. Mm. The people, not so much. Actually, it's the same problems. We always, you know, it's egos. It's, uh, you know, the, the concept of jealousy that comes in there. It's, it's all the basic human elements that have been around for thousands of years. Hasn't changed, yeah. yet the technology is changing at a pace That is unbelievable. Mm. And how do you marry those two up? I, th- I think that's the biggest challenge. Yeah,
0: it's very tough. One what, what of the big things that you've been involved in is the, the femtech movement. Uh, you've obviously been a kind of a big advocate for uh, you know, interviewing and, and really sort of shining a light on key female players in both the technology and the, the banking industry. How did you get involved in that? And um, I, I guess you know, you've talked to some amazing people looking through the list of uh, you know, interviews that you've done. So uh, you know, are there any key trends that you see coming out from, from them?
1: Sure. How I got into that is I'm incredibly lazy. Um, That's the truth. I was asked to write a white paper um, by Swift for Cybos for for InnoTribe, back in Singapore. I think it was 2015. Mm -hmm. And I hate to write white papers. I hate to read white papers. I hate everything about white papers. But I wanted to go to Singapore. And I like Mm InnoTribe. I like the concept of it. So I said yes. I was able to co-author the paper with a friend of mine. So we looked at diversity in the industry. And I'm going to be blunt. It just it was an opportunity for me to go to Singapore and, and, and to do in a tribe. So I selfishly said yes. Then I started doing research, and, and then I thought, oh, this is actually really bad. I hadn't paid any attention to it. And um, the numbers were horrific. What I saw was horrific. But what I, one thing that we did in the white paper I thought was brilliant was we, we interviewed. We just didn't give an opinion. We talked to, I think, 10 or 15 women across different parts of financial services to get their feedback and across multiple continents. And we saw some consistency in their message. The white paper went really well and Peter um Auer had asked me to do a second follow-up before Sybos. And I just didn't have any time. And I said, what if I just do a couple more interviews? That'll be easy. I've done 357, wow. I think, interviews in a year and a half. That
0: is impressive. Isn't that that's crazy? commitment. Right? That's nuts. Yeah.
1: And and that's on the side. That's at night, weekends, yeah. just you know, it's but I enjoy it. It's mm-hmm. something, the more I started doing it, the more fun I got. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we've created a, an entire website dedicated to this now. Gela Boscovich, who's a good friend of mine, was one of the women I interviewed. Lives here in London now. She's really taken it to where we now have meetups. When I leave here, I'm going there to meet a ton of the individuals I've interviewed uh, to actually meet them for the first time, which right. I can't wait. So like um, um, Starling Bank and Bowden will be there. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been able to interview Blythe Masters, which I thought was really cool. Leslie Berlin, who's now the CMO at Twitter, mm-hmm. used to be with Amex. So, yeah, it's really been. I'm about to interview a refugee that is running to be the president of Somalia. Wow. How cool is that? Yeah, Yeah, just through introduction. That's actually the one I'm probably looking forward to more than anything. I interviewed the young lady who introduced Bitcoin into Afghanistan. It's got a price on her head. I mean, just, you know, individuals that inspire me. So, I've loved doing that. I'm incredibly lazy, I don't do any editing. I interview them, they write. They give it to me, I copy and paste. So again, it, it seems really like I'm a really nice guy. I am a lazy ass <laughs> I'm Not doing anything. Um, but I enjoy it, it's really fun. I say the biggest thing I learned is that this is one of the most complicated messes there is, and there is no easy solution. Mm-hmm. When we talk about diversity in the workplace, there's not one simple answer, it's education, it's talking about it, it's acknowledging it exists. I think that's the best place to start. And if you don't believe that it's in, if you don't think diversity in the workplace is an issue, Go read any write-up on this. Don't read the write-up. Read the comments. Just go right to the trolls and read that, and then you'll go, okay, yeah. Or look at the American election. Yeah, yeah. sorry.
0: Well, yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna maybe mention that next actually, because it would be a shame to, uh, yeah. you know, have you here without mentioning it. But, um, you know, welcome to the pain. Essentially, Thank you know, you. we've we've sort of had the, uh, the change curve, which is called Brexit. And, uh, you know, we're on the other side of that slightly, I guess. But um, you guys are probably in the midst of it now.
1: Yeah, thank you for Nigel Farage. Farage. <laughs> God. You're welcome. You can have him. Yes, thanks. Um, thank you so much for that. I was absolutely amazed that Brexit went through. I was on a, I was doing a radio show that day, and Simon was on. He's one of the guests. And I was talking to him as this occurred. And I said, I, I see that you're having some bad weather. Do you think that's going to impact this? And Simon laughed, you know, and said, no, nah, I think we'll be fine. Um, and I was flying back on a plane to the States that night, and I remember watching the news unfold, and I thought, what's happening to my adopted country in the U.K.? And then (laughs) our election took place. We'll see what comes of it. I'm in pain. I don't don't know what else to say. It it hurts me as an individual. And again, I think as I'm getting older, um, the the empathetic part of me really hurts. Um, Let's see how bad it gets. The state of the world today does make me nervous. Um, France, I think, will be the next to potentially fall with their leadership. And then you look at the UN Security Council, the five individuals that will be running that don't align with my values whatsoever. That's tough. I think that's the scary thing, isn't it? You know, the Brexit piece that we found probably hardest
0: to understand was there was half of the country who thought so significantly different to us. You know, I think the the Trump piece terrifies me. But four years from now, he will be history. You know, like he won't get reelected. I wouldn't have thought he would have been a... But actually, it's the awakening that actually half of a, a huge country thinks completely different to the other half. And that that's quite a terrifying proposition, isn't it? It's a, you know, challenging democracy moment in terms of where we are. It's a huge thing.
1: Well, I think it has a big impact on our industry. I talked to Dan Kimmerling, who's a Silicon Valley Bank. Um, Dan literally a genius. He's a member of Mensa. I found that out last right. week. I didn't know that. And we had a long conversation about this. And I personally think that, especially in the U.S., one, we do live in bubbles on, on all sides. Mm-hmm. Um, social media help, helps drive that because you only get your point of view and you can filter that to no end. And that's incredibly dangerous is not being exposed to how other people think and talk to them. But I think Silicon Valley's in for a, a rude awakening in that they're gonna be made out to be the enemy somewhat. And I don't think it's their fault whatsoever, but part of what Trump was able to run on was on the idea of creating jobs, and he's never gonna be able to deliver on that. Not so much just the rhetoric he took, just technology. AI, the advances we're doing, chatbots, you take your pick. They're gonna replace so many jobs. Truck drivers in the US accounts for eight million jobs. That's gonna be gone. They're already, Mercedes already has the trucks to do the long haul. Um, That's 8 million jobs in just one category. We already talked about how banking is going to be disrupted. You know, bank tellers, that whole concept, loan officers. We'll see those jobs disappear. What do you replace it with? I do believe they will be replaced with something, but that requires training, that requires education, and it also requires acknowledging that event's going to take place. So we're going to go through a massive shift in how we work and the types of jobs that we need to do, and we're ignoring it Mm. to no end. And I do think that Silicon Valley, uh, Silicon Alley in New York, I think London, um, you know, to some degree you become the enemy. And it's, I think that's sad. I really do.
0: Mm. It's hard to put the uh, sort of genie back in the bottle. Oh, is not happening. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we've almost, uh, we've started on the inevitable path of, uh, you know, what is humanity good for really in terms of uh, where we are?
1: Well, I think it'll make our leadership interesting in the future because I would love to see some leadership come out of the tech community. Mm. Um, I would love to see that take place. Um and I and I think you're gonna to have to be incredibly tech savvy to be a leader. To some degree President Obama was. Um a lot of people have talked about him going into venture capital. Um but I, Bloomberg is another example of that, Mayor Bloomberg. I think we're going to see some leadership come out of the tech space. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think you do need to understand that. Um and, and, and not belittle it and you know, go and say you're gonna bring factory jobs back to the Rust Belt in the U.S.? It's never going to happen. Hmm. It will not happen. If that factory does come back, it's going to be robotics. What jobs did that replace?
0: We need to get so advanced with technology we can go back in time. I think that's uh, the uh, the statement, isn't it? So.
1: Well, it's, it, it gets back to, you know, how, how do you do potentially a guaranteed income? What do you do? I mean, there's there's a lot that we need to take a look at from a social impact on what society is going to be like for our kids. Hmm. I'm I'm 50. So, you know, quality of life is going up, so I'll probably be around. But what about all my kids? What's their life going to be like? Um, I am definitely pushing, you know, the STEM studies for them. I'm Mm -hmm. pushing it, but it's their choice if they want to go into it or not. But I think that's incredibly important to to be able to go down that path. And um, it, it makes me slightly nervous for the future. On that note. Don't you love that? And that's why I'm going to go drink a whole lot tonight and <laughs> get so, so one of the things that you've been
0: doing quite a lot of, obviously, at the back of the all of the interviews that you've been doing with, with Femtech is now the podcast.
1: So FinTech 5, how, how did that come about? Um, well, mainly because I like the sound of my own voice. <laughs> narcissistic. Um, when I was doing all the interviews for the for the Femtech leader part of that, um, what I enjoyed the most about it was the actual interview itself. They were either you know face-to-face or over the phone. And I just enjoyed that process immensely. And then I realized I hadn't really captured any of those outside of a print form. It's a WordPress site. And I was tossing around the idea of a podcast. You know, I've done a couple of the radio shows, and, and I enjoy that part in the FinTech uh, community. And so I came up with the idea of a podcast that fit within my my framework from a work standpoint and time standpoint. So I thought, what if I did a short form, only five minutes? Because I listen to podcasts like crazy, and I have, I have a, a way of doing that. So I listen to you guys on long drives or flights or everything else because that's an hour, hour and a half. Um, the same with, like, Breaking Banks or others. I have cut my grass to that. But a short form, only a five-minute podcast, that's t- I don't know anybody that's doing that that's not on a micro topic. Sure. So I thought, what if I just did short interviews kind of based on my ADHD? And how much could I shove into five minutes? So, And that was the hardest part was how long would the interview be? Yep. Did I do seven minutes? Did I do 10 minutes? And I went with five because it had an F in it, and it f- <laughs> FinTech. Um, so it sounded great. And what I've found is you can shove a lot into five minutes. Hmm. You really can. And it's a lot of fun. So I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed doing it. I, I take moments of opportunity to do that. If I see somebody I know, I said, and it's easy to sell, right? Dave, I only need five minutes. You don't have to do any prep. I, I want you to laugh. I want you to cuss. I want you to be yourself. It's Pure five minutes, unfiltered, very raw, but to get insights on the individual. And I love that. How much information can you pull out in five minutes? That's actually a lot harder than doing, you know, a long-form interview.
0: Yes. Prep, focus, it's good. Yeah. But it's great. You know, I really enjoyed the listen. So uh, guys, definitely check that out in terms of what uh, what Sam's doing. So Sam, thank you very much for joining us. Really thank appreciate you. it. It's fine. Thank you, Sam. So interesting to hear how you became the nicest guy in fintech pretty good lessons there for everybody just starting out in their careers, or really for anybody for that matter. And now to my interview with Chris Gledhill from SECO. Believe it or not, in a previous life, Chris was also involved in submarines. Not really sure what it is with these fintech guys and submarines, if I'm honest with you. Chris also led the Disruptive Innovation Lab for Lloyds Banking Group before becoming the CEO and co-founder of SECO. Hope you enjoy the interview. <laughs> Fantastic, Chris. Thank you very much for for joining me. Um, what we're going to try and do is is just have a, a little bit of a, a kind of a, a walk through memory lane with you. Um, you actually went to the university that I wanted to actually go to. You went to Loughborough University, didn't you? But you studied computing, whereas I had sort of uh, strange aspirations of being a sports person of personality of some description. It's amazing how many people sort of started in computing. Do you think that gave you a you know a very good grounding with sort of what you're doing today?
2: Yeah, I reckon so. I think computing when I went to uni it was about nineteen ninety eight. So I think computing was just about getting fashionable at that time. Um, so Loughborough was one of the, I think, the top universities in terms of computing. It was, I can't, like you say, it's it was good for sports and good for nerdiness stuff like engineering, computing, and I was definitely of the latter. Like there <laughs> were literally people doing like press ups on the knuckles outside the window while I was like busy coding and playing computer games. It was <laughs> that kind of place. But yeah. Well, that- Definitely, like, having a, a rooting in in computer science has definitely helped me. Like, I did my thesis on um, deep learning in neural networks, uh, and that's just finally getting into fashion now, right? And it <laughs> took me, like, a whole year to code something which takes about three lines of Python now. It's gone, it's gone totally crazy, but it helps now. Whenever somebody goes, you know, they're talking talk about blockchain or whatever, it's all just basic data structures in computer science, really, right? Nothing <laughs> particularly posh about any of it. Uh, so yeah. it's good to, uh, to ground at all. And also like so much tech just goes around in a full circle anyway, Um, you know, cloud computing is just mainframes rebadged, right, and just chatbots are just command lines rebadged, right. It's all just going around in circles and circles all the time every 10 years. So yeah, it's definitely helped me a lot.
0: I think there's a, a definite, um, you know, a definite need to have that type of grounding because it's um, there's so many people. You know, I think it was a, was an Accenture study recently about the amount of senior people in banking organisations who actually know anything to do with technology at all, and it's I think it's like six percent, which is terrible. So, you know, having that understanding of where. Uh, the art of the possible is and also in terms of when suppliers are actually talking nonsense as well then uh, you know it really kind of sets you up for doing it and you know I guess you went into quite a um, kind of a deep career on this you had uh, working as a web developer working as a software engineer um, one that I spotted there you, you built software for submarines this was quite an interesting one when you were at BAE what, what happened
2: there? Yeah, that was out of university. So I joined a graduate scheme at BE, and uh, I can't obviously talk an awful lot about the sort of projects that we were working on there. But it was uh, it was kind of interesting work. It it was a good grounding in software engineering. Like definitely, um, there's analogies with banking because banking so heavily regulated, and the consequences of failure in banking are huge. When the same thing's exactly the same for the defence industry. Um, the consequences are arguably a lot worse if things go wrong you know, it's literally life and death, but uh, a lot of the software quality and testing stuff that I learned at, uh, at BAE has kind of helped me in good stead uh, through my career when I go into uh, working on some big systems later on down the line.
0: Well, you, you had, to, uh, like I say, a fun one. You did sort of Barclays and HMN, uh, HM Revenue and Customs, you know, you've worked for Shell, you know, really sort of big organizations with sort of lots of, I guess, quite a lot of sort of bureaucracy in in here as well. You uh, you seem like a bit of a sort of a glutton for punishment when it comes to uh, big companies, slow moving in terms of doing things. But I guess there must have been quite consistent themes through these people.
2: Yeah, I think I was always um, I was always migrating towards the left hand side of the project lifecycle. So I was always ending up in innovation teams or doing kind of early stage development. Um so I never really got it down with some of the sort of legacy infrastructure, cultural baggage that some of these organizations have. I was always kind of pushing envelope a bit in in terms of what they were doing. So I guess I just found it a lot easier to do that kind of stuff in large organizations because it was so easy. There was so much low-hanging fruit in terms of opportunities to 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 help out. Yeah. And and I I think, you
0: know, looking through what you've done, the sort of TCS days and the Essentia days, I guess again, sort of seeing that um, you know banking as a entirety of a cycle actually you know really allows you to have quite a unique perspective doesn't it in terms of kind of where you are you've uh, you've sort of seen all of the different elements of the value chain really and uh, you know i guess it helps you decide what's good and what's bad really
2: yeah i've kind of is for good and bad i'm not like a queer banker right so i've worked in like you say every single part of every software project life cycle and pretty much across every single um, industry vertical going and it's only in the last sort of three or four years I've kind of landed in banking for a while uh, but yeah it does does help out and also a lot of the stuff going on in fintech um is all applicable across multiple fields and in in fact quite a lot of the stuff going on in the customer front end side of stuff's been done you know two or three years ago in in most fields so it's good to uh, to get that kind of cross industry experience
0: and your last job before you um, before you sort of co-founded um, Seco was innovation at uh, Lloyd's Banking Group. Sort of tell us a little bit more about um, what the types of projects that you're working on there, and uh, and and really, I guess that brings us up to, uh, to to today, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, sure. So I joined Lloyd's. I didn't join in the innovation team. I joined as a uh, the lead mobile architect. So at the time, they were just um, upgrading their their fleet of mobile apps. So I was the, the front-end architect for their app, which was going out to sort of ten million customers or so. And then after that, I um, migrated into the innovation team, and then um, started what was X Labs, which is kind of a disruptive innovation labs. Um, it was kind of you know like Google X Labs. It was kind of rip off of that. The idea being let's kind of ten x everything and look at the uh, a bit beyond sort of horizon one, at horizon two, and horizon three. So taking my sort of technical knowledge in terms of, like, deep learning, neural network, artificial intelligence, blockchain, data science, all that kind of stuff, then applying it with my business knowledge in terms of, like, different business models of peer-to-peer centralised, distributed, um, decentralised, what's crowd-sourced, whatever, right? Putting that all together and trying to imagine um, what the future of banking might look like. So it was kind of a dream job, really. It was kind of pretty cool to, uh, to, to work with one of the biggest banks in the UK, looking at the future of what was going on in banking. And then, like a lot of people, realised that the likelihood that that stuff's going to happen was quite low, um, and actually, it, it could potentially be a lot easier to disrupt banking from the outside in rather than the inside out, and hence the, the decision to leave and, uh, and found Seco.
0: Wow! So that was what was that? Just over a year ago now that uh, you sort of made that decision. So Seco's what was it? Year of four months, I think. Yeah, it we just passed our birthday. Yeah, so it's just
2: over just over a year now.
0: Well, it's so it's amazing, an amazing decision to make. You know, it's uh, it's always quite a scary thing to do, isn't it? You know, stepping outside of a, you know, a company and a salary and kind of all of those things, especially when you've got a, uh, you know, a, a family uh, uh, as well in terms of doing things. So, what what sort of really sort of spurred that change? Was it really all about going and doing it? You know, making it happen, or was there some other sort of uh, deep seated desire that you had to uh, to go and start a company?
2: I think it was, a, it was a timing thing, right? So I realized that starting a challenger bank was kind of a fashionable thing to do at the time. Uh, and there was a ton of them popping up, but I realized none of them were particularly challenging uh, much at all, really. They were kind of going for more conventional banking license with off-the-shelf architecture with a sexy app on top of it. So I realized there was a massive opportunity for someone to go in there and do a proper conceptual shift of what a bank is. Also, I realized that um, some of the tech that's bouncing around, things like some of the blockchain technologies, were just maturing, so there was really good tech there. Also, um, London had kind of cemented its position as global fintech, ground zero capital of awesomeness. So I kind of realised I was kind of well positioned for all of that. And also I just had some really good ideas for for what might be a a new type of banking experience and uh, an economic model. Um, So it was all just kind of perfect timing, the kind of planets aligned. And I realised that it's kind of lucky to have this sort of time in your career where you actually have an opportunity to make a difference. Because all of that stuff that I've done in my career previously, it's all kind of really good incremental projects that have moved companies forward some way, but none of it was uh, changing the world stuff. And realize actually the sort of things we're looking at in SECO could potentially change the world if we managed to pull it off.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I remember sitting down with you um, when, I, I guess, you know pretty early on in this, when you were sort of thinking through and the, the sort of breadth of the technology that you were looking to implement into this was was quite breathtaking, really. So maybe, um, maybe sort of starting, I guess, with sakura what is what is Sekarora and what is it that you're trying to achieve
2: yeah you're kind of yeah you got like a sneaky preview early on like back when it was probably a probably bit chaotic you probably think who's this crazy guy talking
0: about me? no I, I no, my my view was this sounds amazing but i'm not sure i'm i'm quite uh, I, almost like the you know the uh, guitar solo at the end of the back to the future it was almost like i'm not sure if people are ready for this just <laughs> yet
2: but it's coming yeah you know? yeah back then it was kind of a bit chaotic we were in our kind of discovery phase so we've gone like really big with our vision and we were through, through chats with um, smart people like yourselves, just kind of curating it down to, to a framework that's more manageable uh, and then down to a, a minimum viable product. And that's where we landed on Aura. So Aura is the front-end channel that is Seko. So Aura is um, a bit like Pokemon Go, if you played that. It's kind of so much easier to explain it now that Pokemon Go is about. <laughs> because before we go, going, oh, it's like this location-based thing where you scan the area and you find people. Now we go, where's Pokemon Go? But it's not people and you don't catch them. You trade with them. So it's basically that, right? You have a map, you get to scan the area and find other people who are Seco customers on that map. uh, Mm -hmm. And then you interact with them via the aura. And an aura is, uh, as it sounds, it's something that gets broadcast from your phone up to a 100-yard radius wherever you go. So it's kind of like a a beacon-style interface that you get to broadcast. Uh, And you get to decide what that interface looks like. So instead of banks having APIs, our customers have IPIs, so individual personal interfaces that broadcast wherever they go, right? And you get to decide... Um, so you get static stuff like you know um, brands you follow or uh, celebrities you associate with or charities that you support or companies you work for or skills that you have all this kind of stuff you can broadcast contextually and it can change where you are and then you can open up your um interactable ipi so uh, things that people can do on your profile or things that you're looking for or things that people can um can purchase off you for example Uh, what you get to decide whatever it is right um so i'll give an example like so we're doing a uh, a proof of concept in the fashion industry so we're looking at fashion easters around carnaby street in london and they get to define this aura so that could be look at my outfit you can rate my outfit as an interface or you can look at who's the who's the designer or you could uh, view that it's certified as uh sustainable source materials or Uh, no child labour used in the production of the garments, all this kind of stuff, right? So you get to broadcast that. Other people can see the outfit and go, wow, look at her shoes or handbag, that's amazing. They can make that and give you a compliment. You can get a referral if somebody goes and buys it, having seen it on you. So you create this whole kind of ecosystem where um, someone gives you a compliment, that's a coin. They give you a discount voucher, that's a coin. You go and purchase it, that's a referral, which is also a coin. So you kind of got all of these kind of social interactions working on top of this aura. But we realised early on that Seco had to have a, really engaging front end it can just be one of these kind of blockchain platform as a service type things and then just hope that you'll build a developer community and people will build cool stuff on top we went the other way and said actually let's build a really engaging experience and then we'll just like sneak in all the economics on the side of it later on when people get really uh, excited about the app.
0: Well, it's it's the bit that people care about, isn't it? It's uh, actually it's the differentiation of the experience at the front end that actually allows you to build that community to do it. So, so what was the thinking of um, going into the sort of fashion Easter
2: end of the spectrum first? The concept of Seco is we're trying to create this world where wealth is the contents of your character, not the size of your wallet. So it's all a, it's a reputation play. So in our world, you don't get rich by having billions of dollars. You get rich by having really good reputation. Uh, and then we looked around at where's the most fertile place to launch this kind of thing. Realised that fashion people actually care a lot about their reputation. Um, and it's not as superficial as you might imagine. Actually, a lot of people into fashion are also into causes and charities and a whole bunch of other stuff. But what they do is they um, they leverage their reputation and they they already trade in a lot of non-monetary units like discounts and vouchers and referrals and coupons. All of that kind of stuff is a, is a healthy economy in the fashion industry already. We also found that fashion people already have their own aura. They already broadcast their own outfits, their own personality. They care a lot more about it. Like for me, clothes are just a utility, right? For fashion people, they have their clothes say a lot more about them. Their brands that they wear are very important. It's, they align with the values of the brands. They have other social cues like wristbands that say, I went to Glastonbury or jewelry that says I support this or ribbons that say I, I've donated to that. There's so much extra metadata they already broadcast. So they're already using aura. They just didn't know it yet. Um, mm. So it was such a, a fertile ground, that when we showed it to these people, they were like, "Oh my god, that's so awesome! We need this app right now. I need to like tell my friends about it. Where can I download it? Kind of stuff." They were really excited about what we were doing, just because it was mm. exactly what they were already already using, just in a very clumsily sort of way.
0: And where did the where did the name Seco come from then? So like um, the Seco, the aura part of it, I get now in terms of the the kind of broadcast of uh, as uh, you know me as an individual
2: in terms of what I'm doing. Where, where did the Seco sign come from? so there's two answers to that right so <laughs> the the more mature answer is that it's a socioeconomic community and it's short for that uh-huh. so that's the so that's the that's the derived answer the original answer is more that uh, we were looking at reputationally rich people and we realized that um, generation x were the most reputationally rich so these are people who have members of clubs and societies and golf clubs and ptas and all this kind of stuff these are people who have a lot of reputation a lot of circles um, so we looked at the kind of areas that they like. So they kind of shop at Waitrose and drive Aldi's and drink Prosecco. So we thought, well, we'll just kind of, we'll chop that in half and use, use the word Prosecco.
0: Nice. It's good. It's good. It works. It works really well. It's a, uh, especially with the, the description around the aura, it, um you know, really sort of brings it to life, doesn't it, in terms of where you are. So so where, where are you now in the, the journey then? Because this is a, this sounds like a very different proposition, as you say, from any of the other banks that have uh, have really sort of come through in terms of what they're they're doing. Um, where are you in your journey in, in terms of uh, creating Aura?
2: Yeah, so we, um, we're we 12 months old. We got seed funding in summer. We built out the alpha version, which went live. Uh, and now we're raising Series A funding to take us to beta. I guess in 12 months, yeah, we've kind of done that discovery phase, uh, designed the kind of blueprints of it, some of the back-end architecture, built out the minimum viable product, tried that with some people, got some really good feedback. And now we believe we've tested the technology and that all works. We've tested. There's a custom appetite for this, um, so that's a big tip box. Uh, so now we are back with the investors doing pitches, saying, "Look at this! Now this is this is quite a big deal, and we need some money to to go big with this, uh, and go big we can because we are not regulated like the other challenger banks. We decided very early on to pivot away from um, going for the conventional banking license." because we found it was quite restrictive in terms of the um, capital ratios and liquidity required for a, to be a fractional reserve lender, also some of the regulatory overheads for a lot of that. Um, so we found with SECO, we we have a model that's not a bank, like I guess Airbnb is not a hotel or Uber is not a taxi company. It's um, it's the product is about value and wealth and reputation. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily about money and investments and lending.
0: Okay, well that's, that's really interesting because like you say, the Really, when you start looking at the people globally who are doing probably the most interesting things in what's sort of broadly categorized as banking, it, it is the amp Financials. It's the WeChats, It's the, the people who sort of, uh, like you say, the, the Ubers who sit on the periphery really of um, of what the, the kind of regulated space is. So, you know, the fact that you guys are, are going to be sort of sitting on the outside of that one and not be, I guess, hamstrung by some of those things in terms of what you're doing, it'll allow you to move, yeah, I guess, a little bit quicker than some of those other guys
2: will do as well. Well, what we are doing, though, however, is we're trying to take the regulator on the journey a little bit, um, because what we realised is that um, we reckon we are the forerunners of something that's going to blow out a bit. I think the idea of identity and reputation being a, a unit of value is, uh, is something that people are thinking about a long time. You talk to people like um, Dave Birch, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be a big deal. And eventually, when it comes around, the regulators have to understand that kind of stuff. So if I, you know, if I spend some data to buy a coffee... Is that a financial transaction by the regulated by the, uh, the FCA or PRA? Or is that a data transaction regulated by the information commissioner? How is the HMRC going to tax a piece of data? You know, how do you work out the value of the data for taxation purposes? All this kind of stuff is kind of important discussions to be had. So we're trying to um, bring the regulator on a, on that bit of a journey so that we don't have to then back for a massive regulatory structure when we when you get to scale, because we will be regulated. When anything gets regulated, once it, it achieves a certain scale, um, so we want to um, to lead that conversation.
0: Now that that makes makes
2: total, total sense.
0: You know, this feels very much. Um... In, in the same way, actually, as some of the things that have come through, uh, you know, with the announcements around the, the FCA sandbox, you know, this is new category of financial services. It's just the maybe the regulation hasn't quite caught up with what it is and, and how specifically they regulate it. But um, how have you found the, um, you know, the engagements with the FCA so far? Has it been, um, I, I guess this is so different that, like you say, the, the journey is almost as important as the answer for those guys, isn't it, at this stage?
2: Yeah, it's been, um, it's been interesting engagement. I think the FCA um, quite rightly prioritises their resource towards um, operational services that have a a systemic risk. Uh, Because of our scale at the moment, we are kind of very interesting, but not the centre of focus. So what we're doing is more of a keeping them informed of where we're at, rather than, you know, demanding a lot of resource and, uh, and stuff. So that kind of works for us um but because you know if we're the 300th peer to lender to launch this month then the fca needs to 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 be looking into that the you know somebody some crazy person talking about the future money is uh, is kind of interesting but it's not fun to mind for them right now particularly when they've got brexits and all sorts of other things to be to be interested in
0: and speaking of which, Chris, I, I can't sort of let you go without uh, maybe talking about that one in terms of where we are, because you're um, you, you were actually one of the people who were probably most vocal, um, definitely in the sort of social channels I, uh, I kind of mix in, actually being very pro-Brexit. You know, you were probably one of the lone voices that were putting up the... Um, the argument, from uh, you know, definitely from my vantage point, in terms of why we should be doing it, and actually all the additional benefits that we'd see in terms of where we are. So, you know, I guess we're quite a few months into this now. Um, you know, would you still vote the same way that you voted, or would uh, would you um, would you have changed your perspective?
2: Yeah, I think I did a couple of blogs. I did one kind of early on when I said I was going to vote. I did another one just just afterwards. I think I probably need to do another blog on on where we're at. Uh, but definitely, I would vote the same way. Definitely, I still support Brexit. I think a lot of the um, catastrophes that were predicted haven't really happened. The sky hasn't fallen in, uh, and actually, it seems like a fairly orderly process so far. I think um, a lot of the predictions I had are coming true. So, May is amazing a, a tremendous job, traveling the world, forging alliances with the likes of China and India, and setting up fintech bridges all over the place. I think definitely the opportunities are going to outweigh the risk, the risk of Brexit. And I think it'll be one of those things like. Keeping the pound, I think you know. In ten years' time, it'll be hard to find anybody who who voted for Remain. Everybody will say, "Oh yeah, yeah I voted for for Brexit." I think in hindsight, it would seem like a a pretty awesome decision that we made. I acknowledge that there's a lot of worry across from a business point of view and a lot of people from a personal point of view in terms of the immigration status and that kind of thing. But I think it was a it was the right thing for the UK to do from a big picture point of view in terms of sovereignty, but also. Uh, from a strategic point of view, we we like to underplay ourselves quite a lot as British people, but you gotta acknowledge the you know the position we're at in terms of our digital economy, with the largest digital economy percentage of GDP of any other country in the world. We have like four of the top ten universities. We are historically awesome at innovation, and it seems like in a in a future digital world, I don't think borders are going to be the the thing which decides about these alliances. I think it's uh, in the digital economy, borders don't really matter that much.
0: That's true. The world, like you say, hasn't uh, hasn't ended just yet in terms of where we are. But uh, I guess there's a hell of a long way to uh, to go in terms of where we would go with that one. But um, so, so Chris, where where can people learn more about
2: uh, Securora then? What's the uh, how can people get involved? So there's a few ways. You can go to Securora.com, and on there you can sign up for pre-registration for our beta. So if all things go to plan, that'll be in uh, March next year. They'll have the opportunity to, to join our, our public beta. Uh, otherwise, just follow me on Twitter at @seagliddle or watch uh, some of the blogs we'll be putting out in in the coming weeks.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Chris, and look forward to having you on the show soon. Cheers. Thanks, David. Thanks. Thanks so much, Chris. That's it for now. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our Fintech Insider podcast, give us a review on iTunes, and befriend us on our new Fintech Insider page on Facebook. That's all. Thank you very much, fellow Fintech Insiders. Talk to you soon.